most of these high-profile calamities where a leader goes off the rails and falls from grace and there's a big scandal, almost always there is this kind of model in place where there's no accountability and one person has accumulated way too much power and then has a sense of entitlement and feels they can do what they want. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you all with us today. I'm Jake. I'm here with my co-host, David Campbell. David, how are you today? Thank you. You tell me it's snowing in April in Canada, where you are. It's, it's snowing as I look out the window right now. Smith a shame. That's a shame. I tried decreeing, declaring, repeating, crying, nothing worked. It didn't work? Maybe you're... Uh... You're not, not decreeing right. I don't have enough faith, obviously. Clearly. Uh, well, it's a good day. It's a good day where I am anyway. I'm in Los Angeles where it's pretty sunny. And just want to say a big thank you to everybody for listening and tuning in. We really appreciate it. Um, be a huge help to us if you left us a review. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, five stars is always super helpful. And of course... Uh, subscribing on YouTube is helpful as well. You can look us up uh, at Good Theology. Today, we're going to have a conversation around church government, which is something, David, that you said has been on your mind quite a bit. Uh, you've been traveling a lot, so you've been in lots of different churches, having lots of conversations with pastors. Um, and so this is something that has been on the top of your mind, probably also connected to the not-so-new but consistent uh, pastoral failures that we see uh, in the last couple of years. Obviously, some big names here in North America, uh, in the USA specifically, a couple of which have recently been restored to positions of ministry uh, already after pretty big failures. So I'm sure we'll get into some of that as well, and that connects to church government. But I'm going to let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us what you've been thinking about? Yeah, well, we're, uh, on the one hand, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, we're blessed to be associated with a wide range of churches, including yours, which are very healthy and which have godly leadership and so on. But it doesn't take too long looking around the body of Christ. You know, there's another report comes out, uh, and it's not always a moral failure. Sometimes it's abusive behavior or something like that. Uh, and... Uh, and then uh, some someone said to me the other day, um, you know, that guy is a godly man, but he's just under so much pressure because the whole thing hangs on him. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of stress in his life, uh, and they expressed concern about that. So I think all these things play into it. And uh, I feel that we have wandered away uh, badly from biblical forms of church government. And I don't even think most of us realize it. It's that bad. Um, and I think that we are so uh, uh, dependent on 
church traditions. And those of us in the sort of whatever world we're in, the charismatic, evangelical, whatever you want to call it, world, we don't think we have any traditions. You know, it's just the same thing. We don't think we have any order of worship or liturgy, right. which is bunkum, because we did. There are all sorts of traditions. And uh, yeah, we're going to sing three songs, and then we're going to get up and we're going to do church news. <laughs> and then we're going to preach the message, and then we're going to give an altar call. That's our liturgy. You know, about the only thing that's changed in recent years is now we do online giving, but we still aren't out. <laughs> so, you know, it's just so predictable. Uh, anyway, I'm not opposed to order. No, of course not. The church should have order. There's, and there's nothing wrong, per se, with that order. Uh, it's just no, we, have to, we, should, we should acknowledge that it is an order. Yes, exactly. And, and we should evaluate what our order is evaluate the way we do things, we should be constantly evaluating, I don't mean every minute, but regularly evaluating um, whether we're still in line with Scripture or not. And Calvin said, you know, the church is in continuous need of reformation. His phrase was Ecclesia in Latin was Ecclesia Semper, semper Reformanda. And, and uh, so, you know, we're we never reach a perfect spot, uh, and then we pass it on to the next generations. I mean, we, we've always caught to be reevaluating where we're at in light of moving of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of Scripture. And I think that, you know, the old story about the uh, carpenter, I'll probably, I'll probably mangle it, but the, uh, the carpenter who made a perfect piece of furniture or something, uh, and then the next person, uh, instead of taking his own measurements, went off the measurements of the previous guy. And then gradually, four or five people late, later, you know, the measurements got way out of whack. So we have to, it, it's a good kind of analogy because what we tend to do is do things the way our predecessor did it or the way the things our movement has done it. And our predecessor did it the way that his predecessor did it, and so on. And all the while, this goes back generations, and we fail to measure things against the Word of God, which is the one true standard. So, you know, if a piano is being tuned, there's um, what used to be, you know, a tuning fort. And there's mm -hmm. a, we used to be a tuning fort, and uh, uh, um, the, the piano tuner would tune... You know, the piano tuner did not tune uh, D to C or B to C key on the piano. The piano tuner had an independent standard to right. which everything was tuned. Right. And our independent standard is the Word of God. We don't tune ourselves. We don't measure ourselves by the way our predecessors did it, our movement has done it, somebody else has done it. That's a fatal mistake. You know, it's not that we don't have things to learn. Or even Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, which li literally means imitate me as I imitate Christ. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's all part part of it. But we also need to be going back to that tuning fork, which is the perfect standard of the Word of God, and reevaluating. Um, so that's in uh, that sets out a general sort of set of principles mm -hmm. uh, or the idea that I want to pursue. 
yeah. is when we apply it to church government. Uh, I don't know when, uh, you know, obviously within the medieval church, uh, there was a great corruption of biblical church government. Some people, some church historians and patristics people say that it began as early as the third century. And uh, what it involved was moving away from plurality of leadership to the sort of one-man band. So it's always been a tendency, I think, in human nature. Um, and I think that in, in some respects, it's understandable because if the church is a family, every family has one father, one mother, uh, ideally. And uh, so uh, you don't have a whole you know, pile of people running the show. But on the other hand, the Bible, you know, rather annoyingly to our frame of thinking, uh, the Bible rather annoyingly insists on a plurality of eldership and terms the office that of an elder. So right from the beginning in Acts 14.23, uh, Paul appointed elders wherever he went. It never says in the Bible that anyone was appointed to be the pastor of a church. It just says elders were appointed. And when we look at, uh, uh, and, and so anyway, that was that. But then as, you, as, as we progress through history, obviously the Roman Catholic Church modeled their form of government on the Roman state. And so right down to the colors that each of the, um, you know, the, the Pope, the Archbishop, the Bishop, and the priest would wear corresponded to different uh, governing and social categories within the Roman state. Um, for instance, the emperor or the senate or the um, the next order down uh, and so on. And so uh, 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 it, they, it, you know, effectively the medieval church moved completely away from any recognizable form of church government. And in the Reformation, there was a partial restoration, but the Reformation uh, didn't always get everything right. Um, and, but Presbyterianism traditionally has, uh, has had a, a plural eldership and the minister is sort of the ruling or teaching elder, mm -hmm. which is great. But at some point when, uh, when Christianity intersected with American, uh, culture, uh, democracy entered the picture. And all of a sudden you get everybody being elected. And, and, and now you haven't got real elders anymore. You've got elected boards. And now you haven't got real shepherds anymore. You've got pastors who are hirelings. They're hired and fired. They move on. They, they're like bank managers. They stay for a couple of years. Then they go the town I lived in and ministered in for over 30 years. We were back there at the church this past weekend. And uh, there was one congregation in the town, the pastor told me, that in 75 years had had 50 pastors. Oh, my word. And uh, a another congregation in the town, both prominent congregations, uh, the, the, the pastor there told me when he hit, I think, seven years or eight years, that he was the longest serving pastor they'd ever had either in, in you know, 80, 90 years of history. So... This sort of thing is uh, rampant 
so we got all this mess uh and uh the church it it goes along with i'm i'm going to stop in a minute because i'm going on too long but it goes along with the fact that the church is has become corporate and moved away from being a family and if you have a corporation you're going to have everything done on an executive basis you're going to have you know various levels of officials and you're going to have hirings and firings committees and all this kind of thing and again it's it's it, it, structure isn't the issue it's a question of good structure versus bad structure and so what i feel is i mean jumping over a lot of these things in the charismatic world um in at least a part of the charismatic world and so some evangelical churches as well there's been a reaction to all of this mishmash, which is good. But the reaction has swung in the opposite extreme. So instead of having a pastor Mm -hmm. who is a puppet of an elected board and the board being maybe the most influential or wealthy people or, or the most politically astute people or manipulative people, who knows. Or even elected by the congregation as a whole which is standard practice, right, in most churches in North America. Um, and the pastor is just a hireling and comes and goes. Uh, and so in reaction to that, we begin to discover biblical truth that, that that's not, you know, that's not what the father of the family should look like. And so we swing to the other extreme and have this, this model where um, all power is concentrated in the in the one big leader and and possibly his wife and so uh churches uh operate on that basis and everybody else around them uh well, nobody else around them really has a lot of influence the church is ruled by the big man and uh i understand uh there's a re- re- where the reaction is but I think it goes overboard in the other direction. And the problem is that where is a, where is a pastor in a traditional evangelical church in the North American culture uh, can hardly turn around uh, or order a paperclip without permission of the board. Right. On the other hand, uh, you get these big personalities who have absolutely no accountability. There's nobody around them that will say no and the people who are, even the people who are employed on staff, the one guy is writing their checks, so why would they say no? And I think that when that happens, it's a setup for disaster. It doesn't always happen, but when you analyze most of these high-profile calamities where a leader goes off the rails and falls from grace and there's a big scandal, Almost always there is this kind of model in place where there's no accountability and one person has accumulated way too much power and then has a sense of entitlement and feels they can do what they want. Or there maybe to to offer one alternative there, there is accountability, but it doesn't seem to come into play until it's too late. So, for example, accountability sometimes is the police, unfortunately. Sure, but even within the church, though, there's examples of of uh, 
well-known pastors recently who have been terminated from their position by the board, by the church, uh, by the elders. And so there's accountability there, otherwise they wouldn't be able to be fired. But the accountability should have kicked in much sooner so that they never would have reached the position that they did that led to their termination. Right, because it basically comes to the point where they had no option but to right. act out, ask the leader to step down. And I'm score, or even on the other side of that coin, the, the pastor who falls often feels like they have no other option but to sin because they're, they've put themselves in such a predicament where there's so much pressure on them and they don't have the right structure set up of support so that they can uh, they can confess the things that they're struggling with and uh, be led away from sin and and you know um, find healing. It's a it's a pressure cooker. I think I think there's two different types. I think there's people who whose weak character is exposed, uh, you know, by by the fact they can do anything they want. Um, I think there's others who. Uh, in a, a different situation, wouldn't have fallen into problems. But yes, the pressure just gets too great. And so, you know, they start drinking too much or there's various coping mechanisms and so on. And and it's just really sad. So let's pull some of that apart a little bit because I think the, your way of putting it in regards to uh, two extreme ends of the spectrum is where uh, people wind up is probably largely true um i will say you know because of kind of the circles that i run in uh or the sphere that i live in i should probably say um it i do end up finding that your typical charismatic church that is um has like a, a primary head like a senior pastor i will say in in my experience they they do often have good structures in place. Maybe they don't use the term elder, um, but they have something very, very closely approximate to the biblical ideal, if not the biblical ideal itself. I, th I think that's worth saying for sure. And we can talk more about that. Now, let's ask this question. Where does Paul and the New Testament church, where do they, where do they get their, their structure for leadership? Because they didn't just make it up. My understanding is that there's there's got to be some carryover into the New Testament from the old. Um, obviously, my mind goes immediately to Moses, and what I see in that is actually uh, a a mixture of both plurality and um, a central leader. And so, let's talk about that. Yeah, the the concept of eldership, I think the Hebrew word is zarkain, uh, goes right back to uh you you're correct, right back to the days of Moses. But there are there are elders uh who reappear throughout the Old Testament. Uh and you know, in, in the elders of Israel or elders of cities or elders of the king are three different categories and they just keep popping up. Mm -hmm. And of course, um there were elders attached to the synagogues, so it was a it was a Jewish concept uh, that the church took over, and and why not? You know, because it was a good idea. Uh, the elders were uh, 
godly men who, um, you know, could be entrusted uh, by God with spiritual authority. Uh, and the New Testament has uh, two aspects that it operates on when it comes to church government. In my book, Landmarks, I actually spent spend 100 pages, believe it or not, talking about all this. Uh, the one is the local eldership, and the other is what we call the Ephesians 4, fivefold ministry, apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, and teacher. And if you, if you go into it as far as you can, understand from what the New Testament uh, says, and if you pull together all the various references, it seems that the, the fivefold, or Ephesians 4, gifts are ministries which operate within the body of Christ to strengthen local churches, right. such as Paul's own apostolic ministry, for instance. Uh, and if you, uh, again, piece together all the different references, there were at least 22 men who Paul had working in conjunction with him on what might be called an apostolic team. And presumably some were pastors, some were teachers, some were prophets, and so on. And uh, so the idea is that at the local level, you have uh, uh, an eldership that is governing, and then at a translocal level, you have uh, a group of senior sort of ministers who uh, travel between churches and um, bring advice or counsel or strength or extra gifting or wisdom, perspective, resolve problems where they can't be resolved locally and so on. And so I, you know, and even if you look at most denominational structures, there's a kind of a residue of it left in that you've got superintendents of denominations, whatever you want to call it, uh, and, and local church boards. Uh, in my ministerial experience, most of my friends that operated within those um, networks or denominations were uh, frustrated by the fact that, you know, it was more of a bureaucratic arrangement and the superintendent never arrived until it was too late and there was some, you know, internal division within the church and the whole thing blew up. Uh, and, and there wasn't a sense of personal relationship. And I've known one or two people in those positions that, you know, are, are, are uh, having to travel around dozens and dozens and dozens of congregations. And I don't see how you can possibly do that it, it, just on your own, not even in a team, just one person. So uh, I, I, my appeal is even where... Uh, you know, my my appeal is always, and I'm a, a teacher, so I'm going to make this appeal, is l let's hold to the standard of Scripture. Let's go back. Let's take what we're doing and examine it in light of what we see in the Word of God. And is it recognizable? Um, you know, how far away have we removed? Do we need to make an adjustment? And are we prepared to throw out our whatever system of church government we have, if we come to the the viewpoint that it is biblical or there is a serious problem in it, or are we so wedded to our tradition, you know, that we can't do anything about it? Or if you're stuck in a denomination that refuses to change or allow any, you know, flexibility within local um, churches, then maybe it's time to come out of that denomination and do something else. 
So let's offer up something constructive then um, and see if we, we can find something that most closely represents uh, biblical church government. Um, I come back to the the coexistence or the uh, the harmonizing reality of the one and the plural. T- to me, that can't be escaped. Um, and I think a a healthy church is going to have that in its government, and I think an, an effective church is going to have that in its government. Um, so you've you've made a strong case for the subject of, of eldership, um, of a board of elders, uh, a, a ruling group. Amongst that, you have giftings. So um, you might have a strong teaching gift. You might have a strong prophetic gift, um, a ruling gift leading. I think within every single leadership top tier of a church, it is always going to be most healthy to have somebody who is called by God to be the leader. And we, we clearly see that with Moses, even in his delegation of, of uh, leaders in Israel. It seems to me that we see that even in uh, the New Testament as well in the book of Acts. Um, even in Acts chapter 15, when they're making this this decision on you know what their response is going to be to the Gentile churches, they talk about it as an eldership. But then it seems to me that James stands up and, and makes a pronouncement, a judgment. I think it even says that he, he says, I judge that this is what we should do. So he is in some sense the first among equals. He's He's the leader and he's making the the final decision of, of what's going to be said. Um, Paul appoints elders in churches where he goes, but at the same time, he writes to Timothy. Timothy is his true son in the faith. I left you, Timothy, in charge so that you could appoint elders. Um, and so it's to me, there's this inescapable re- reality that's that's almost reflective of God himself, the father being the first among equals and reflective of the family. You know, the, the dad is the head. He is the leader. I think that you need that in order to have vision that is singular and therefore a church that is united. The prefix die in division means two or double. So I think division often happens because you have division, you have double vision. So there, there needs to be unity of, of vision and purpose. Um, and I think that that comes from, from prophetic leadership, from prophetic vision, from someone who's called by God to plant a church, to have a really strong team around them who holds them accountable, who compliments them. But those two realities have to work together. Yeah, the, uh, where you have to be careful is that you're not importing uh, logical ways of thinking or modern Western ways of thinking into biblical church government. Um, And the one thing we have to deal with is that nowhere in the entire New Testament is there a clear indication 
uh, or nowhere in the entire New Testament is there an office of an individual leader of a local congregation. Nowhere. So that has to count for something. Um, you quote Acts 15. James says, and of course, he's going to say, therefore my judgment, because he's giving his opinion. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble, but that we should write to them, etc. And the summary then, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. So he's, he is expressing something within the, the corporate. In other words, um, everyone's agreed on it. And this, I think, is incredibly important that, you know, by and you, you can import the idea of a senior leader from the Old Testament, or you can import it from uh, an analogy with the Trinity or with the father of a family. It's true. Um, but you also have to weigh that against this very, very strong emphasis on plurality in the New Testament, and the fact that there isn't an office of senior leader. There is no such thing as pastor when it comes to a local church. That's a total fiction. It's an invention of our modern culture, church culture. So you weigh those up, uh, and and you, you, you try to, uh, you, what you come up with is something that I always think is the acid test whether you've got a successful uh, eldership, which is this, that everybody has to sign off on anything significant. And I don't care whether the senior leader thinks very strongly the church should do something. If the leadership team is opposed to it, then you've got to, to stop and say, okay, we've come to an impasse here. What are we get? How are we going to resolve it? And of course, it could be resolved in a number of ways. Um, Maybe everybody looks at it and and compromises, and God refines the whole thing. You know, maybe um, somebody comes back and says, "Hey, you know, I got this wrong," and you know, or uh, maybe you have to call in an apostolic authority to sort the thing out, which is fine. But uh, what it means is that the one man executive leadership is efficient, but it can lead to disaster. Um, where if you, whereas if you have a corporate group and you're agreed within the group that we won't make any significant decision, I'm not talking about small administrative things or whatever, even what you're going to preach on next Sunday, but it, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to buy a building or we're not going to appoint other leaders or we're not going to you know, significant things in terms of direction. We're not going to do those things unless all of us here around this table are agreed. And if one person says, I have a yellow light here, then we stop because that one person may be hearing from God. And and I speak out of experience where that has, been, has worked and has been effective. And I think that a lot of the troubles that we've had in church leadership failure would have been avoided if that kind of um, government had been operating in those situations. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, but I can't help but feel like you're setting up a bit of a false dichotomy because the the model that I'm putting forward is exactly what you're saying. T to me, it's not you. It, it's not one and not the other. I think the both have to to 
to be working together. So for example, if you're in the position where you have a, uh, a healthy church eldership and you have leaders in place that are a ruling body, there still is going to be the visionary person among them who charts the direction and, and, and uh, the vision for the church. And that vision has to be submitted and discussed and uh, come into agreement upon especially when it comes to large things like the purchase of a building or, or something like that and should not be moved ahead with until there is agreement. Um, and most, most examples that I know, I mean, I, gosh, I, I feel like I would say even all is that's exactly how they would operate. And even though there is a primary speaker communicator and you can't communication is part and parcel with vision. Um, having vision and communicating vision are often two things in one package. Uh, it, you have that reality, but you have the backing of eldership, the backing of leadership that causes it to be united around and successful. Yeah, I see. I think that, um, and you alluded to this earlier, uh, um, people, uh, we, we've got the fivefold ministry gifts, and I... I'm defining them as not local leadership, right? Uh, however, uh, if anyone is a leader in the body of Christ and qualified to be an elder, those leader, fivefold leadership gifts carry aspects of leadership and, and the heart of God for his church. So in an ideal eldership team, You'll have a person who is prophetic. You'll have someone, and you alluded to this, someone who's pastoral, someone who's a teacher, someone who's apostolic, etc. Now, it doesn't mean that they are an apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, or evangelist in the Ephesians 4 sense. It just means that... Which is another conversation for another day. It means that uh, they, because that would confuse the fivefold ministry with local eldership. Um, but uh, it does mean that although someone could be an apostolic person and lead a local church, but just because you are involved in leadership at a local church, um, it's a disastrous mistake, in my opinion, to say that you've got the fivefold leadership within the, the local church because fivefold leadership is a highly attested form of ministry that has the capacity to travel around and resolve issues and bring government and et cetera on a much bigger scale than local leaders can, can do. But you can still have someone who, what is an apostle anyway? Well, apostle is a builder. What is a prophet? A prophet is a visionary. What happens? The, the, Prophetic person sees something but can't build it. Who builds it? The apostle builds it, right? And then the teaching gift comes along and teaches into it. And the evangelist brings people into the whole thing. And the pastoral person makes sure that people are cared for. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And in an ideal local eldership, those types of people should all be there. And one of the reasons why is because each person, even if you are... The, even if you're sort of apostolic and prophetic and a strong visionary and so on, you still need those other people because you are not seeing the whole 
picture of what God wants for your local church. None of us can, no matter, because, because only Jesus had all five of those rolled up into one, you know, and even if you're a good teacher and a visionary and you can build things, chances are probably you're not all that pastoral and you may not be evangelist. You, you know, you're always going to be missing something. So that's what we want to bring. But my, my contention, and again, bringing it back to my pickiness uh, over the authority of Scripture, is why aren't we ordaining elders? Why aren't we calling them elders? Why do we use secular, unbiblical terminology borrowed from the corporate world, which has connotations of what, like a board, for instance, which has connotations of, you know, and people can say, well, David, you're just being picky. Well, I am being picky, but I, I don't mind being picky with truth, you know, because it's no use going to a conference and everybody's saying, oh, we're going to stand for the scripture against postmodernism, postmodern culture. And then you go home and your church is not structured biblically. It's hypocrisy. So, you know, I'm here to be a, a pain in the backside to people to say, look, you know, why don't you call an elder an elder and ask God what an elder looks like in your local context and start appointing elders. And what, do you mean, what do you mean by that, ask God what an elder looks like in your local context? Well, ask, ask look, look at your local church. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're a leader, let's say, leading a local church, have an honest look at your congregation. Have a look, look at what your, the leadership structures you've got in place are. The Bible provides for an eldership and a diaconate. So that the diaconate are the people look look after practical things, finances and stuff like that, church organization. And if you've got, uh, you know, if you've got people that, let's say, you're employing uh, uh, or whatever, then uh, or people within the congregation who have leadership capacity, uh, are they elders or are they deacons? You know, which category did they fall into? And let's appoint both. Um, and while we're uh, appointing them, uh, use the biblical terminology that's there rather than um, importing secular terminology, which when people look at it, because when you go into a church and they say, well, the board says automatically 99% of people think of the corporate model. We need to get people back into the biblical model. And I don't care whether people say, well, what's an elder anyway? Well, then that's our opportunity to explain what an elder is. And, you know, I don't think it's... Anyway, I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that agitates me, Jay. No, it, it makes all the sense in the world to me. And uh, I think you're right. We, we inherit language uh, and we inherit certain ways of doing things. And those things should be scrutinized. Um, it, it is. It's still not apparent to me how... You can, you and I don't know if you're even saying this, but I want to give you the, op the opportunity to clarify. It's still not apparent to me how you can totally get away from the fact that uh, you're going to need somebody who gets vision, somebody who incites vision, and uh, who is going to make a decision when a decision has to be made. Because as you said, not every decision is as large as buying a building. There are there are more ordinary everyday decisions that we make. Um, 
And so you're going to have a Peter, you're going to have a James, you're going to have a Timothy. How do you, how do you totally get away from that? Or is that not what you're saying? No. Well, uh, depends. Um, you're, you're talking like that because you are a visionary and that's your own experience. But what about a church where, which is led by someone who, and a lot of churches are led by people who are not visionaries. They're pastor teachers. We could call them in gifting, right? And so, um, I, I think that, uh, the first thing that we should do when we look at ourselves, if we're leading a church or the leaders that we're working with is to try to assess, uh, let's stop taking these stupid Enneagram type tests. Forgive me. I was just, no, ran. that's great. <laughs> when I worked with a chartered psychologist, registered psychologist for years, and he was apoplectic about right. these simplistic fourfold tests. You know, they, you, I don't care what you call them. They all amount to the same thing. And he said, if you're going to do a, a, a proper test, there's the, you know, the Minnesota test, there's a California test, is, believe it or not, it's gold standard or used to be. Hey. And they, they need to be administered by registered or chartered psychologists, you know, by professional people. And they actually are worth something. But let's get away from these amateur things that tell you what personality you... I mean, I went to it. Yeah, well, anyway, I won't go off on that. that. that That'll take me on a tangent that I don't need to go off. But let's look at the biblical categories. And let's look at ourselves and say, okay, you know, what, what am I? Like, for instance, um, a good friend of mine, uh, his name is Steve, uh, lives here in Ontario. And we started churches at the same time. And I, I got, as time went on, I got increasingly agitated because uh, I was far better educated than Steve. I don't think he was hardly educated at all. He came from a working class background. But why was it that his church was growing 10 times faster than mine? And I got kind of annoyed about this until, you know, I had a revelation and God just showed me that he carried a building gift that I didn't carry. And so... Um, and that alerted me to the fact that we shouldn't evaluate our effectiveness by the size of congregation, for instance, that we had, because um, uh, because uh, that size of congregation expresses a particular gift, but not all the gifts in the body of Christ. Anyway, um, so uh, but but here's me, and here's Steve. So I look at myself and I think, well, in all those years, I'm operating primarily as I would define myself as a prophetic teacher, which means I'm doubly picky. I'm prophetic. Uh, prophetic people are picky. And I'm a teacher. Teachers are picky. So critical and incisive. <laughs> well, the one of my church didn't grow all that much because, you know, I was ultra picky and probably too picky on things. Um, and so... I need to to say, and I did have the good sense to find oversight and other people around me, look, or or uh, to say, well, Lord, at least I recognize I haven't got this. I need somebody here that has got what I haven't got, right? And and he, by the same token, sh should have been looking and probably was looking for people who weren't what he was. So, if you're leading a local church, you need to have an honest assessment. Uh, to know what you are, to know what you are is absolutely as important as to know what you are. 
because human nature, particularly among men, is we all want to be the top dog, which is the A-type personality, you know, the, um, the apostolic man and all the rest of it. That's what we want to be. And we need to have the courage to say, I'm not that. That's not what I am. And it doesn't make any difference. But if I'm not that, um, maybe I shouldn't be leading this church or maybe I, I should be leading it, but maybe I need to find people who know how to build and add to my team so that we have that diversity in in the midst of, of what we're doing. And I mean, I agree that, uh, you know, where where you a, a big church is going to be built on the foundation of somebody who basically has an apostolic gift. It may be not uh, a fully developed apostolic gift, but they're heading in that direction. They know how to build, uh, you know, they're prepared to take risks and step out in faith and so on. Right. And that kind of person is going to feel stifled if they want to take a risk and their eldership is is completely risk averse. And so in that context, you need to have a healthy balance of push and pull where that apostolic type leader is saying, this is where I see God can take us as a church. And then you have you have your eldership who go, okay, have you thought about this? Are we thinking about that? And there's conversation and dialogue and, and compromise. I mean, I've experienced that many times. Um, but at the end of the day, there has to be vision. And as soon as there is division, there is division. Um, and I, I just don't see how you can escape that, uh, that outcome unless you are committed to, um, an apostolic type of leadership when that's the person that is leading the church. Yes. Uh, I think if you have an apostolic person leading, it's more a question of tempering uh, and maybe time adjustments. Sure. Uh, um, I, I think I agree with you on that. Uh, but again, the, the principle stands that, you know, how we operate. And if a person is truly apostolic slash builder, then that will be reflected in the team they've accumulated around them. In other words... They will not accumulate people that have an opposite vision. Uh, that that doesn't mean they're yes men. It just means that we're aligned. Uh, we're, all, we're all agreed, yeah. you know, that this is the kind of church that we want to build. We're all agreed that we want to take risks. We're all agreed, et cetera. Uh, but within that area of broader agreement, there has to be a place for someone to say, well, you know, Jake, I, I, I love your vision. I think it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. I completely agree with you and and have personally experienced that um, to to the tune of waiting a year a year or more for something that I see because the eldership or the board uh, have uh, a good perspective that helps temper vision and make sure things go well. So we're in total alignment in that regard. Let's I want to come back to this. Let, let's just take one quick little. Uh, rabbit trail. When we're looking at the two New Testament categories of elder and deacon, does every single gift of the Spirit fit into those two categories? Or is there a, some, some sense of a third category where it's, it's, 
it's the the laity it's it's the body generally speaking that's gifted all throughout um but maybe it doesn't fit into one of those two categories uh well i i'm i think that the fivefold covers all the main bases of leadership gifting uh uh but let's so let's take First Corinthians twelve, right? So let's take gifts of healing. But the gifts of the spirit are not um, offices of leadership. Two totally different things, right? So that's what I'm asking. So it, it sounds then that not all gifts of the Holy Spirit fit into those two categories, those two two leadership categories of uh, elder or deacon. Right. That gets into the New Testament teaching of what are the gifts of the spirit. So 1 Corinthians 12, you've got nine manifestation gifts. They're spontaneous movements of the Spirit that can come upon anyone in the context of, uh, you know, not just of a congregational service, but in Acts, you have it happening in evangelism and so on. That's got nothing whatsoever to do with church leadership, zip zero. But then at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, you have this reference to are all apostles or all prophets. And so... Uh, into Ephesians 5, you know, and you have uh, Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, same kind of thing. So there are, there are w what you could call spontaneous supernatural charismata, uh, is the 1 Corinthians 12 word, uh, spontaneous gifts of the Spirit occurring, let's say, in a worship service or some other environment, such as healing, um, which don't bestow any kind of authority in church leadership at all. Then you have office gifts of that the Holy Spirit gives, which I'm suggesting on my analysis of the Bible are apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers at a translocal level and elders and deacons at a local level. But within the local level, you'll have those kind of characteristics of the apostle being the builder, the prophet being visionary, and so on. You'll have that reflected in a healthy leadership uh, at a local level. Um, but adding in the, the proviso that um, there are many churches, as I said before, that are not led by visionary or apostolic type people. They're actually led by pastoral teaching people. And, and that's fine, too. Mm -hmm. you know. But those people, uh, churches that are led by those type of people will often... Uh, tend to focus inward. They may have great pastoral care, mm -hmm. but they may lose external vision. Mm -hmm. And so somehow uh, you need to... They need to be complimented. ...what you've got, and you bring somebody into your leadership team that's a real rabble-rouser evangelist, <laughs> or you bring somebody in from the outside and say, you know, we need some help here. It's great when a church is led by, you know, an apostolic visionary person, but most churches actually in real life aren't led by, by those type of people. I'm not saying that, that they're not led by good leaders. I'm just saying they're not led by those type of people. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. That's the majority of churches, which, it's, which is probably why the majority of churches in America, at least, are uh, on the smaller side. And that is is possible, um, and it's not a bad thing. There, you know, bigness. I mean, it's great to have mega churches, but they have many, many faults and failings, unless they have very strong 
you know, a small group uh, network within them. Um, I've always felt that when a church gets to a certain size, it should plant out congregations. Uh, you know, that that's a more effective, I mean, if, if for, for only this reason, that uh, in a big organization, call, shouldn't call a church an organization, but in a big church organization, um, you are going to have a, a certain number of people who are running things, and you're going to have an increasing number of people who actually are quite gifted and could lead stuff, but are sitting on the on the pew doing nothing. Whereas if you throw them out into a church plant, and I've seen this over and over and over again, those people get activated. I mean, you you've planted a congregation in Nashville, and they're wonderful people. But you know, if they were all sitting uh, theoretically in your congregation in Los Angeles, half of them wouldn't be doing nearly what they're doing now. But because they're planted out. It's every hand on deck. You have to do that. And that's a great thing because you utilize all the gifts that God has put within the body. Yeah, I agree with you. I think having vision and stepping out and doing new things is always going to engage people that otherwise would, would be disengaged. Um, so why don't you put forward, I, I understand what you think is ideal. Um, and... I want you to put forward in a, a concrete way um, what you think a, ch a church leadership structure is going to look like. And it sounds to me like you think there might be more than one answer to this, given gifting. Well, I think there's one answer in the sense that the Bible, the New Testament, says there's to be an eldership and a diaconate. Uh, and... Uh, what's important when when that works well, the the financial and administrative people, uh, the the eldership makes the decisions, and they're administered by the uh, financial administrative practical people. I'm not saying elders are practical, but um, where it goes wrong is where people on the finance committee decide, no, we're going to second guess the elders. We don't agree with that. They're not there to do that. They're there to implement the vision. And obviously, if there isn't money to do it, they've got to report back and say, well, we'd love to do this, but we haven't got the money. Can you help us? So I think there should be those two uh, um, bodies. I think because I think the Bible talks about elders and deacons, I think we should use that terminology. Say more about what you see deacons doing really quick, because it sounds like you're limiting that to an administrative and financial responsibility. Uh, I think deacons in in the in as far as we see it in the New Testament, they were involved in practical administration of things, which included uh, and practical administration inevitably includes money, um, and so uh, financial and practical considerations of of how you know, programs are being run and how to set programs up and how to finance them and, you know, that that kind of thing. And how to, if you've got a church building, uh, for instance, uh, elders shouldn't be worrying about what's going on, you know, who's going to, you know, uh, fix the heating system and 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 this type of thing. That should be something that the, the diaconal people look after all of that because, um, you know, the biblical rule is, 
we, we won't neglect the word of God to wait on tables. That was the original eldership in Jerusalem said that. Their job was spiritual government, not practical administration. So that's where I think the division comes. And my appeal is to people to evaluate um, what you've got in terms of your own local church and to evaluate how much of it has come from the Bible and how mu much of it has come from A, church tradition, or B, uh, corporate culture. Uh, and, and to be honest and to say, okay, we want to reform this by where we've imported things that are not biblical are going to cause us trouble. And we need to move back to a biblical model. Understanding, of course, that every eldership team, every leadership team in a church is going to look different because you've got different people and you've got different types of communities that you're going to be reaching. And God understands that. God is smart enough to put that all together. So you, we're not creating a cookie cutter here at all. There's a, there's a pattern that we, we all want to, want to adhere to, that it's flexible enough to cover, you know, big city, um, small town, rural, big church, small church, in between church. The, the pattern is there biblically, but it can be adapted depending on what the whole, how the Holy Spirit puts that into implementation in terms of the people that are involved and the, the situation that they're facing. I can't help but wonder if we're dealing with a difference of terminology here. If, if that is really the heart of the conversation. Because I can, well, I can I'm, think I'm, I'm giving out what I think is the biblical pattern. That's all. And I'm, I'm not, I'm just saying my appeal to people listening is if you're leading a church or in leadership in a church, could you just go back to the scriptures and hold up what you're doing. And my job isn't to run around telling you whether you're doing the right thing or not. My job is just to point you back to the word of God and, and to appeal. It, are there things in the way that your church is organized and led that actually, if you looked at it, um, you've just inherited from the denomination that you're in or from something you heard at a seminar church growth seminar 20 years ago or something? Or have you really run this through the framework of the Word of God? And, you know, I'm not even saying if, no, uh, well, I mean, because I'm picky, I'm saying if you've got a church board, uh, you know, what is the church board doing? Is it a diaconal function or is it an membership right. function? Or is it doing both? And if it's doing both, that's, that's going to cause you trouble. You need to have two groups, one to do one and one to do the other. If you want to call it a board, call it a board. But I just think using biblical terminology gets us out of the mentality. Board, the word, I know it's, it's you say I might say I'm picky, but I'm just saying it connotes something that we get out of the business culture that we live in. And the church is not a business. The church is a family. It's a fa it's the family of God. Yeah, elders function within the family, right? That's the that's the biblical context, right? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, it's interesting when I even think about our own context. I have two groups uh, that I would one I would call elders, and the other I would call uh, 
diaconate or deacons. Um, but we don't use that terminology because that's not the terminology that I or thousands of other pastors like me have inherited from our movements or denominations. So I guess the question that I have to ask myself is, do I just change the name? <laughs> well, you know, the fact is, Jake, it might make virtually zero difference right. in the way that your church is run, but at least you'd be in line with biblical terminology. When people say to you, well, why do you have this? You know, why do you call this governing group such and such? If you call it a board, you can't take them back to the Bible. It's not in the Bible. If you call them elders, you can say, well, here's what the Bible teaches about elders, and this is what we've got. This is why we have another group over here that deal with practical administration and finance and administering stuff and whatnot, because the Bible says the elders shouldn't be neglecting the Word of God to wait on tables. Um, you know, and, and at least, because I feel that it's hypocritical for us, on the one hand, to say we're all about obeying the Bible, uh, and make a big song and dance about that. But then when it comes to church government, you you admit, well, actually, it isn't in the Bible. Well, then what the heck are you doing? You know? <laughs> I see why I'm a pain in the backside. No, it's just... It's anyway, good. if anyone is in leadership uh, and, want, and gets agitated about this, I explain the biblical foundation. I take 100 pages to explain the biblical foundation of it in my book called Landmarks. So I'm, I'm, you know, that'll make me $3 in royalties or something if you buy it. Well, that's, that's not why I'm telling you to buy it. I'm telling you to buy it because it may actually do you a Help, little bit. Be helpful. Yeah. There's a lot of other stuff in it too. So let's round out the conversation by connecting this to what we see in terms of um, uh, fall, 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 fallenness, pastors falling from grace, falling into sin um, because you link that to poor church government. I do. Not solely, but as, as part of it. It's, no, right. It, it's That's not all of it, but it's a part of it. Or it can be a part of it. And I remember in a church situation that a, a friend of mine and I were discussing in the UK, um, and there was a problem uh, with the pastor and his wife, uh, and they really had just, they burned out, basically. And uh, the question that both of us had was, because they were in a movement that that, that should have had A, eldership, and B, apostolic oversight, and both those groups should have made sure that this didn't happen. But there was a failure of what what had been put in place. You know, either the elders weren't operating as real elders, they checked out or whatever, or the apostolic oversight had got careless and no one had, you know, when when the guy didn't turn up for this or that, or, you know, no one showed any care as to why that wouldn't have been the case. But it was an anomaly. It was an odd situation within that particular movement because normally that would never have happened. I mean, it it you know, you, you still have problems. I mean, because every, you know, movement has its problems. But the question is, can you put safeguards in place so that if the problem happens, you can attend to it before it really gets bad and people get hurt? 
and you can bring some um, assistance and help into it. So I think that, you know, people people often talk about, well, pastors go in and out of ministry, you know, so many thousand pastors every year in the, in the United States, for instance, leave ministry. And I think one person for every one, for, I'm sorry, for every five people that begin st start out in ministry, only one finishes. Uh, and that's a pretty pathetic, that does not speak to health, the health of the church. And I know I understand in that, that some people are gifted to go in and out of church leadership and other business responsibilities. I'm not talking about that. That's fine. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just saying there's a lot of, of couples out there and their families who have been absolutely devastated. Uh, and a lot of the problem is these unbiblical church structures, which, which eat up, uh, you know, uh, leadership couples they destroy them and uh and and it's wrong and uh so i mean there's abuse on the one hand but on the other hand most of the problem that happens is a godly pastor and his wife are in a situation and politics intervenes and people are nasty to them and all this kind of garbage goes on uh and they're destroyed and 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 we've got this dropout rate, which is horrendous. And a lot of it, a lot of that, I absolutely believe has to do with, with Western corporate models of, of uh, organization being imposed on local churches. And it just becomes, and as a matter of fact, you know, uh, it, you might as well, at least in that, if you're importing those models, you might as well have a pastor's union. At least they'd be, have some legal protection against some of the predatory people that are on sit on church boards. Now, I know that doesn't apply to uh, the type of church that you or I have had our experience in, thank God, um, but it, it does apply to tens of thousands of congregations in our culture, and that is tragic, and it's all because of a rejection of biblical church government. When you were leading your churches— uh... What did you call your occupation? Like, did you say you were a pa you were a pastor or the pastor of a church? Did you say I'm an elder in in a church? Like, what? what how did you speak about yourself? Yeah. So within the congregation, I asked people not to call me pastor. No, I, I understand that conversation, but I mean, just in terms of what did you do for a living? What was your job? Well, I mean, it with. To people within the church, they all understood I was employed by the church, um, and I used to define it in the sense that to do what I'm I am I am I am paid to uh, teach and care for the flock because there's a need for somebody to do it, um, and so I'm paid not to have whatever other form of employment I would have gone into um, because there's a practical need uh, for me in this position. Um, but I, I define within the congregation, I define myself, I mean, as uh, if I was pushed, I would say the lead elder. Um, and but in 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 our ministerial group, um, you know, they, it was interesting that it, every one of them called each other pastor this and pastor that, but they all called me Dave or David, which I kind of 
liked really because it got me out of that, you know, institutional sort of setting. But they all knew perfectly well that I was leading a church just as much as they were leading a church. Right. The difference was that my primary, I would primarily define myself as a teaching or leading elder. That's That was really my function. So, and I'm promise I'm not being, I'm not being, uh, you know, let me just ask the, point, ask the question. So if you're the lead elder, you are the first among equals. You're the leader amongst a plurality. Well, you, you, uh, I, I think it's an inescapable reality. It, it is almost, I admit it. Yeah. I, I admit it. You're being annoying. I'm not, I'm not being annoying. And I, and I, 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 I agree with everything you're saying. I just think that I actually disagree with you in your earlier comment about no example of this in, in the New Testament. I actually think the examples are are pretty obvious. Um, well, I, I th maybe obvious is the wrong word. I, th I think they're just beneath the surface. You're, re but, you're retracting a bit. Well, let me let me talk my way through it because I think I think you would have to ob oblige this because you yourself operated by this model. As the lead elder, so well. Uh, well let, I, I, I was, you know, you're pushing me. I mean, I no, I think it's reality, and I, I think it's the way that the church functions. Terminology. I tried to avoid the terminology entirely. It's but, but maybe not on a good basis. No, it's difficult to explain to people on the outside, right? Because everybody else has a certain rigid model. It's difficult to explain to them uh how how you look at it um and i think that uh the 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 key thing is the concept of corporate eldership and what i call real elders i'm with you on that there's elders but they're not real elders if you have real elders in a setting and I, you know i've known strong strong leaders in local churches but they've got real elders so they're the decisions are corporate they're agreed on, not under duress. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody signs off on big decisions, on 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 significant any significant decisions. Right, which should which should be, by the way, in my view, which should be predetermined. What kinds of decisions are those? What do we count as significant? You know, like for example, in our in our church government documents, it's 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 stated these are the kinds of decisions that that the eldership or the board have to have to agree upon or vote on. Um, and uh, that, well, I think... not even get me on to voting. There's <laughs> nothing in the Bible about that. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're being unnecessarily particular there. I think voting is another term for uh, stating your viewpoint. You're giving your opinion. No, I don't agree. I think it's a democratic corruption of the church that leads to all sorts of problems. I'm not talking about if you're sitting around a table in an eldership, everybody says, this is what I think, this is what I think, this is what I think. If that's what you mean by voting, okay, I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with going to the congregation and saying we're going to have a vote on something. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, No, no, no. I'm talking about amongst the eldership. Right. Then yeah. I don't, yeah. But th that's not, if we talk about Congregational voting—that's oh, yeah. not what most people think about when they think about that. Ah, I see. Yeah, I guess that just speaks to my tradition. Like I didn't, 
grow up with any exposure whatsoever to a congregational vote on anything. And to me, that just seems like a particular kind of hell. <laughs> well, but it's a particular kind of hell that 95% of churches live in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, the- so, so lead elder Dave, lead elder Dave, which is now what I'm going to affectionately call you for. Yeah. um i think i do think there's something to be said um you know that there's leadership in the new testament um it seems like peter was in a leadership type of role amongst the 12 it seems like james assumes that role in the jerusalem church once peter moves on it seems like Timothy is serving that function in the churches that Paul left him in charge of. Um, it seems my like argument, my argument would be where these apostolic men, like Timothy, was operating apostolically. But also locally. So that's interesting, right? So it, yeah, is that a, a matter of gifting? But Paul did that in Corinth. Well, that's was, that was going to be my last example. It's like if Paul comes to town in Corinth, like he's but he's... Paul, He's coming with some with some direction. <laughs> he is. Uh, because an apostle plants churches. Right. And that's what he did. But he also moved on. Because the apostolic gift isn't, you know, the apostolic gift is always heading toward what Paul called the regions beyond, the next place. Mm-hmm. It's always pushing the boundaries of the kingdom out rather than, that's another uh, pet peeve I have with some apostolic circles that are, where the apostle just, uh, presides over a shrinking group of churches and gives out directions and visits around, and there's no kingdom advance right. going into it. Can there be apostolic gifting that remains in a local context? Like, so for example, you know, if I in any way would consider myself even remotely apostolic in my gifting, I'm continually pushing the bounds for our church but that means I'm doing it within the context of our local church and, and what we're doing. You know, I'm not leaving my church and going on to plant another one. And I would say, I would say that what will inevitably happen as your gift develops is that you'll have to put somebody else in charge of your local congregation if, you know, and you, because you'll be spending 80% of your time on the road. And that's what often happens with apostolic men that you can't, if, if, I mean, if you're truly apostolic, you you can't lead a local church at the same time as being out there and doing everything else. And I also think there's something to be said for the fact that people in fivefold ministry gifts can burn a local congregation out because their gift is so great. Right. I've seen that, uh, you know, with teachers and with prophets, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, you you just eclipse everybody else, and you're you're pouring so much vision into these poor people that their mind is blown. Um, so I right. think that, uh, that I, which again speaks to the complementary gifting of, of yes. tempering that. And I think you're right. And, and, and even in our state right now, you know, we, we have, I mean, gosh, uh, I, I guess you would call it a deacon type position in terms of each location has people that are administrating and administrating is in, a, is in and of itself a leadership gift as well. It's not just managing money or tasks. It's dealing with people, and and uh, at least that's how I view it. That's my understanding of the gift of administration. 
Yep. Um, and so that exists so that I can go here and there and to the next place. Um, and that that structure has to be there in order for things to to be healthy and productive. So, so your eldership at your churches looked to you for leadership. I think that, and I promise I'm not being annoying, but like, well, no, but my first church, uh, we had, uh, I was counterbalanced by a very strong prophetic man that went on to plant a couple other congregations and uh, a pretty strong pastoral man and uh, uh, and a te another teacher. Um, so we had, we operated as a team uh, we really did operate as a as a team, uh, and at, at, uh, on a basis of co-equality. Uh, in my second church, um, different uh, number of, over the years, and a number of different reasons for that. What the team looked like uh, left more responsibility in my shoulders. However, um, uh, we did, uh, and and again, we had a small team, and it was not a big church so we really did work together on agreeing on everything and um i probably did have more influence if only because of the fact that i was employed full-time and the other guys had their own you know occupations to deal with and, and couldn't deal with a lot of things but we really honestly did operate as a as a joint team leadership why was the decision made to like why were you the obvious person to employ well i started the darn thing both times <laughs> and wait we we didn't have a church planning team i i hi and elaine and i in second church we just went and started right on our own you were the leader Emulated people around us, so I was the obvious leader. <laughs> uh, I think I think we're enough. Not going to play another one. I think we found the happy compromise here in our uh, our views. I've learned a lot from you today, as I always do. And and maybe I've annoyed certain nuances out of you. That you otherwise would have left unset. I grudgingly admit that you had the odd point. <laughs> David Campbell, it's always a pleasure. So appreciate you and love you with all my heart. I love you too, Jake. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you, and we'll catch you next week.